Welcome to the Heavenly Banquet, where the hungry are filled with good things. What are you hungry for? Today I'm still hungry for justice, but I could also go for some almond butter cookies. This week's lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless they repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? The gardener replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This story opens with horrifying news. Pilate has mingled the blood of some Galileans with their sacrifices. That is to say that Pilate's men killed some Galilean Jews at the temple, at their place of worship, at their most sacred place, at the very dwelling place of God, and at their most sacred time during the preparation of lambs for the Passover. That's not right. Of course, all violence is to be lamented, all death is to be grieved, but violence in a sacred space, violence against a prayerful people, shocks and repulses, demands our attention, and confronts our sensibilities. For even these first-century Jews who were living under the harsh violence of Roman occupation, this, this event was different. This event stood out amid so much other seemingly senseless violence. This event demanded answers. Why did these people have to die like this? Why? We know the horrors of violence in houses of worship, too. The murder of nine African Americans at prayer at Mother Emanuel in Charleston. The murder of 11 Jews at Sabbath prayer at Tree of Life in Pittsburgh. And the murder of 50 Muslims during Friday prayers at Aldor Mosque and Linwood Islamic Center in Christchurch, New Zealand. Even in the midst of seemingly endless global wars and rampant gun violence that claims an average of 100 American lives a day, these shootings grip us, shake us to our cores. These shootings have violated not only our perception of the sanctity of life, but also our sense of basic decency, our belief that religious sanctuaries, no matter whose they are, should be safe spaces, special, distinct, somehow out of reach of the threats of the world, and our conviction that people at worship, at prayer, deserve special protection, if not from us, then certainly from the God they seek. So why? 
Why do these people have to die like this? Why? Well, those reporting the news of the Galileans killed in the temple have one answer. They imply that the victims somehow brought this tragedy upon themselves. Bad things happen to bad people, after all, and suffering is caused by sin. Or at least that was, and still is, a dominant understanding of evil, and one that is admittedly featured in the Bible. Those gossipers struggle to make sense of the murders at the temple by wondering if those killed had been truly faithful, had been good people, or if they'd done something, anything at all, that might have invited that sort of disaster on themselves. And so the rumors swirled. We largely understand the tragedies of our own time as senseless acts motivated primarily by white supremacy, but that doesn't keep us from asking some questions about the victims and what they could have or should have done, ways that they could have avoided bringing these tragedies upon themselves. We find the members of Mother Emanuel guilty of the sin of hospitality and ask why they would let just anyone into their prayer meeting especially someone they clearly recognized as being up to no good. We find the congregants at the Tree of Life Synagogue guilty of the sin of peacemaking, not taking the mounting threats of anti-Semitism seriously and protecting themselves more appropriately. We find those gathered at Aldor Mosque and Linwood Islamic Center guilty of the sin of love for each other that their sense of community led them to embrace distinct forms of dress and patterns of living and prayer that invited scorn and hatred from the Western world. Of course, there's another view of evil in the Bible, one that doesn't place blame on those who suffer, but that dares to lean into the deeper mysteries of life. Ecclesiastes begs us to observe the world around us. Just look around! Isn't it true that the righteous sometimes suffer and the wicked often prosper? Aren't the wicked thriving even while good people can't catch a break? Aren't the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer? Aren't the sick, the hungry, the oppressed languishing while billionaires live out their childhood space fantasies? Aren't decent people struggling to survive while Billionaires have the audacity to exist. Surely, we don't live in some karmic world where good is rewarded and evil is punished. Look to your neighbors, your friends, your family. Open the front page of any news site and know that's not true. Sometimes bad things happen and there, there doesn't seem to be any point to them at all. As Jesus says, God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's vanity, smoke, a lot of hot air wasted trying to understand it. And so here, Jesus turns attention away from why those Galileans were killed in the temple and why those other folks were killed when the tower fell. Jesus tells all of those gossipers, all of those would-be pundits, that they're asking the wrong questions, that they're obsessed with the wrong issues. Stop worrying about what other people might or might not have done. Don't exhaust yourselves attempting to diagnose the condition of other folks' souls. Not only will you never find those answers, but you're ignoring much more important work. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
Now, Jesus is not saying that if you repent, you won't die. He's saying something more like, unless you repent, unless you change your ways, you all will likewise perish, meaning you all will likewise leave people standing around gossiping about you after your death, debating whether you deserve to die. You're all going to die. When and how and why, you don't know, but it will happen. So repent. Make peace with others, with God, with yourself. Repent. Change. Reorient yourself to God. Repent and prepare for your death. Prepare for it in such a way that when you die, folks aren't gossiping about you, trying to determine whether or not you deserved your fate, assessing whether you were a mere victim of our finitude or whether you were a target of a vengeful God. Repent, so it's not a question. Repent, so you don't also leave people wondering whether or not you were a good and decent person. Repent, so they'll know. Repent, so there'll be no doubt. You see, we all live as that fig tree lives, under the threat of judgment and death. But if we have this day, then we can assume that we've been spared the axe. We have another day, maybe another year, maybe only hours. Who knows how long or how short. But that time is a blessing, no matter its length. It shouldn't be squandered. Each day is a chance to do a little better, to love a little harder, to live a little fuller, to become a little bit more of who God created us to be. Each day is also a chance to engage bold acts of justice, to undertake extravagant gestures of love, to demand flourishing life for yourself, your neighbor, and all creation, to step out and self-actualize, to manifest your identity as a precious and holy creature bearing the divine image. Each day is a gift, a new opportunity for life, for love, a new opportunity to cultivate goodness, to pursue justice, to offer mercy, a new opportunity to join as a partner in God's work and God's life. That's what repentance is. It's not wallowing in despair, overcome with regret of the things you've done and the things you've left undone. Repentance is a reorientation toward God, toward the good things of God. And that's why repentance really isn't so much about the regrets of the past, but about resetting for today, making the most good of every moment. Whatever yesterday was like, the disappointments, the mistakes, the missed opportunities, we have the gift of today. And today, the gardener who begged for more time to care for that fig tree wants more time to nurture us, to work through us, to support us to bear new fruit. We aren't in this alone. We have God and we have each other. So don't hesitate. Don't compromise. Don't keep anyone guessing where you stand or whose you are. Make the most good of each moment. Do the most good each day. And y'all, there is so much good out there needing to be done right now. This day and every day is given to you for just that work. Don't let anyone wonder about you. Don't let anyone be mistaken. Don't give them a chance to gossip. Don't let anyone have to struggle to find something nice to say at your funeral. Go ahead and show them all now. Act righteously. 
love extravagantly, forgive lavishly. The fig tree was spared the axe, and if you are hearing this, then you were too. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with today?